0: Alright, my friends, you are in the right spot. Welcome to the rise to the top, uncensored, uncut, unconventional interviews with successful entrepreneurs. I'm David Seitman Garland. On today's episode, Rohit Bargava, best-selling author of personality not included in the new book, Lycanomics. He is in the house, my friends. Got some news updates and much more coming up. Right now. Now, you know, before we get started, gotta give a little love here to our sponsor, Citrix Online, and specifically GoToWebinar. So, if you want to create webinars with the greatest of ease for whatever you want to do with your webinars, you know, maybe you want to create a product, maybe you want to, you know, host an event, maybe you want to, uh, I don't know, whatever, whatever your little imagination can roll with it, the best way is definitely to check out GoToWebinar. So, how about a 45 day, no credit card, Trial on me, on the house. Boom. Here's what you got to do. Head over to go2webinar.com, Click the try it free button. Enter the promo code special, special, S-P-E-C-I-A-L, and you're off to the races. 45-day, no credit card, free trial. You're going to get an awesome product, and you're also supporting new media shows like the rise the top so check that out for sure and also a quick reminder if you haven't already you can get on the vip list and you can hear about episodes of the rise of the top and uh, extra commentary from me and from guests, and and bonuses and all kinds of cool stuff just by getting on the free vip email list all you have to do is go to the rise dot com slash vip sign up your email it's always in the show notes as well so a uh, great way to stay posted with the rise to the top. Alrighty, so uh, welcome to the show. Good to have you here. Uh, I want to give, uh, I got a couple couple quick stories before we get into today's interview. First and foremost, you're not know, going to believe this one. So in St. Louis, there's this thing called trivia nights, right? And, and what trivia nights are, you get a, a team of 10 people, 8 to 10 people you bring your own food, and you're supporting a charity, nonprofit, or whatever it might be. And you eat the food, and then you play ten rounds of ten questions against other tables of trivia. And there's prizes, and there's auctions, and raffles, and all supports a good cause, right? And we, <laughs> and we do this all the time. Like, like we do, I don't even know. Like at least uh, every six weeks, we probably do a trivia night. Just you know, we get friends together and family, we go do it. I gotta tell you, we were on a team this past week—a team that we put together. We had four WashU graduates, three doctors, several entrepreneurs on the team, and we took dead last for the first time ever. How is that even possible? Dead last. The entire team, I, I don't even know, but I wanted to share that with you because that is just absolutely ridiculous. So anyway, back to the point, let's talk a little bit about what's going on here. Uh, number one, uh, before we get into the interview with Rohit today, I want to give you guys a heads up about what's coming up on the show, got a heck of a schedule coming up. Uh, this Thursday, internet mogul Yaro Starik all the way from Australia is going to be in the house next Tuesday. The author of BrainFluence, Roger Dooley, is going to be in the house. And on 31st, very excited about this one. Pro poker rock star entrepreneur, former celebrity apprentice runner up, and she should have won it for darn sake. Annie Duke is going to be here. So uh, a heads up on that. Lots of great programming coming up on the Rise to Top, all for you guys. Uh, and very excited about that. So a uh, couple, let's see, random announcements, sort of um, some behind the scenes announcements here. Uh, upgrading equipment soon. I'm very excited about this. I want to share this with you because I want to make sure our audio is even better. I want to make sure that uh, I, I just—it's all about taking it to the next level. You know, a lot of people that do online shows or you know, create things, they get—you know—there's a tendency to get complacent once you have a certain level of success or you know, people are really getting a good response. I always want to push the envelope. You know what I'm saying? I, I want to—I want to make sure that I'm serving you guys awesome content, a lot of fun. And that it sounds and it looks good. So we're going to be upgrading equipment soon. I am very excited about this. We're going to start sort of a studio build out relatively soon as well. Um, And just a lot of cool stuff. And it's all about just improving the quality and making it easier for you guys. And also, I don't want to spoil alert this too much. But I am going to do a, a hint of a spoiler alert right now is that exciting news coming soon is that we're going to have an extension of The Rise to the Top, actually another show website um, and a whole interesting resource that's going to be just for web show hosts, podcasters, and new media broadcasters. So if you're a web show host or aspiring web show host, podcaster or aspiring podcaster, new media broadcaster or aspiring media broadcaster, uh, keep an eye out because this new site's going to be launching relatively soon. I don't want to tell you too much about what's going to be going on, but I can tell you right now, it is going to be badass because besides interviewing successful entrepreneurs, I have a huge passion for helping show hosts and, and us all learning together and just dominating new media. So I am very excited about this new uh, brand extension, if you will. It's going to be coming out soon, so keep an eye for that. All right. So, Enough announcements, enough shenanigans. Let's get into today's episode. Let's talk about what we're going to be talking about with Rohit uh, today. So, if if you don't know Rohit, you're in for a real treat. Besides being one of the nicest guys in the world, he is a he's a marketing expert. Um, you know he works for Ogilvy, which is and, he, and he's a uh, head of social media strategist there. He, he heads up that team. Um, they do some incredible stuff. He's written a book called Personality Not Included, which is an unbelievable book. He's had huge success in the marketing industry. He really understands how people, big companies, small companies, thinks he's got a new book out called Likonomics. And for this interview, we're doing something a little different. I wanted to know about his rise to success. How does a guy, you know, like Rohit, even exist like how did he go from just you know wherever he came from to being this successful author and you know being a successful marketing mind and thought leader and influencer and he's got quite an interesting story with a lot of takeaways and ideas and just uh, aha moments and stuff like that Um, you're gonna learn a lot I, I know it's gonna make you think about things in a different way and we always love hearing from successful people like Rohit and just again heck of a nice guy so here it is special interview Rohit Bhargava on The Rise to the Top. Enjoy it. Alright, well, welcome everyone to The Rise to Top. I'm a very sick, but still here, David Seitman Garland for you with Rohit Bhargava joining me today. And Rohit, we've known each other for a while, but I gotta make sure, did I just completely botch with the medicine that I'm on? Your, any pronunciation of your name right there?
1: You know, I gotta say, I think the medicine probably helped because that's like the best you've ever done it. So. All right,
0: good because I couldn't hear myself. So I think that's that's exactly where we're at. So, you know, first of all, thanks for coming on. Uh, it, it's great to catch up. You have a new book coming out today for people that are watching it on May twenty second, uh, two thousand twelve. If they're not watching it May twenty second, it's already out uh, called Likeonomics, and this is your second book, right?
1: Second book, you got it. Yeah. Okay,
0: and personality not included was your first book, and. I thought it'd be kind of cool today because I always try to find interesting people. We've met in Washington, D.C., and we've talked talked for years online, actually, uh, yeah. about kind of hearing a little bit more about your story. So so let's maybe start kind of where you're at now. Can you give us sort of a snapshot uh, of what you do now before we kind of go back in time and learn a bit more about you?
1: Yeah, so I have, uh, you know, like a lot of people, it's funny whenever I go to, like, San Francisco or, or uh, any sort of entrepreneurial place across the country, um People are like, well, here's what I do for my day job, but my other hat is, you know, all this stuff. I'm sort of thinking my next book should be my other hat. Right. That's got a good that. title. Yeah, yeah. I'm sort of thinking that. So, you know, TM, right? Trademark that one already. Right. <laughs> uh, but my day job is that I do brand strategy for Ogilvy, big marketing agency. Um, but then I also, uh, obviously, you know, I'm a writer, so I write uh, this book. I've written my other book four years ago. Um, I write a blog, and I also teach marketing at Georgetown. So you know, I've got a couple of different hats of things that I do.
0: Very cool. And where did, where did your sort of passion for marketing come from? I mean, is it one of those things that uh, you know you are you are a born little marketer, and you're two year old two years old walking around marketing, or or what what where did this sort of come from?
1: Um, you yeah, know, I think for me, uh, I started as a writer. I mean, my big thing is that I've always been a writer. I always love to write. Um, and so I think, first of all, a lot of people who are in marketing who do things like writing books or writing blogs, they sort of do it to tell, tell people their ideas and they have great ideas. But the writing is sort of the incidental thing. They're not a writer. They're not passionate about writing. And so for me, the way I landed into marketing was that I was passionate about writing. And it's, I was actually thinking that I wanted to be a screenwriter. That's sort of where my real passion was early on. Mm-hmm. That's, a tu- that's a tough living, I mean, you know, to sell a screenplay and, and right. just, you know, it's, it's a thankless job, man. Um, and but then I started looking at marketing, and I'm like, you yeah, know, this, this is kind of cool. It's like influencing people. It's creative. It involves writing. Uh, it involves just understanding why people do the stuff that they do. And so, you know, I, I didn't necessarily think throughout my whole life that I was going to be a marketer, but it was sort of the perfect combination of my passion for writing, my passion for just, like, talking and understanding why people do what they do.
0: Interesting. And, and how many years have you been at the marketing game now?
1: Uh, well, let's see. I graduated in 97 from college. Okay. Uh,
0: and pretty and much where'd, you doing- go, where'd you go to school? Uh, Emory. Okay. In, uh, Atlanta. Atlanta. All right. There you go. The Emory Eagles.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and then basically right after that, I uh, left and moved to Australia for five years, um, just you know for adventure and just to do it, and um, and that was really good because I was in Australia during the dot com boom in mm-hmm. Australia. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of cool because now I come back and there's all these uh, internet veterans, right? They've been in the industry right. 10, 15 years. That's that's what makes a veteran, right? And they lived through the dot com days here in America, and I have a different experience because. I did that in Australia, and basically it was exactly six months behind. And I know that because I used to come back to America to go to a conference, and what I'd hear about at the conference six months later would be happening in Australia. So it was like
0: this perfect crystal ball. You were like the prophet. Uh, You'd come back over and be like, I know what is coming. I mean, everyone is like, bowing, yeah, bowing, it was like bow.
1: pre-Twitter days, right? So like you could actually say, you know what? This is like stuff that I know because you – physically got on a plane and went 14 hours somewhere else and heard it and nobody else heard it, right? I mean, that was it, that's not the case today. I mean, stuff travels worldwide right away.
0: Right, I mean, instantaneous. And and let's go yeah. back even farther, because this, this is interesting. Uh, I did not know that you went to Australia, by the way. Uh, wh- where did you grow up uh, originally?
1: Yeah, so I was, uh, I was born in India. Okay. Um, and I left when I was less than one year old. My dad got a job with the World Bank. And so I grew up in the D.C. area. Mm -hmm. Uh, We traveled a lot as I was a kid, but we always lived in D.C. So like my dad was in the, I mean, crazy. uh, He had an amazing career. He was in the Yugoslavia division back when there was a Yugoslavia. Right. You know, we went there, and he did Nigeria and uh, the Middle East, Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Egypt. uh, And then um, they went and lived in the Philippines for five years when I was in college. So it's a very international kind of Travel that we did when we were uh, growing up,
0: right? Is there and and you know what? What are your kind of You know, I grew up in St. Louis, and, and you, you know, you grew up in D.C. What what are sort of what is sort of your what was it like to grow up in D.C. and and kind of having that sort of uh, traveling uh, lifestyle, if you will, and, and you know, with with your family going all over the place. What what was it kind of like for you?
1: Well, you know, I think one of the things that um, my dad did really early on is is he didn't um, – he wasn't the uh, type of guy where he would just take care of everything and not let us, my brother and I, do anything. So, you know, what I learned from that was, you know, you got to get the kids doing stuff for themselves early. So, like, for example, I was 10 years old and he'd give me the
0: passports and he'd say, go check us in. Oh, I see. So you got you got early so, responsibility and, and kind of things yeah, that you had to get so done. You, yeah.
1: Yeah, so you're kind of doing this stuff yourself, and so you don't have this expectation that like somebody else is going to take care of all this stuff for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that was really interesting, and I still carry this today, was the idea that, I mean, we went back to India every two years. And, you know, I mean, India has modernized in the last 20 years amazingly. Right. When I, when I was a kid, and we would travel, I mean, the toilets were holes in the ground, literally. And, you know, you come from America where you have flushing toilets and all of this stuff, and, and it's easy for kids to be like, oh, well, you know, I don't want to do this in India. Mm-hmm. And they would always say to me, It's said, India's India, America's America, and they're two different places. And you can't start comparing them because they're good for different reasons. And if you do, then you're missing the point. And oh, I think that's, that's such a valuable lesson. That is. Me. Like, not just with travel, but just like, you know, be where you are. I mean, especially now with social media and all the ways that we can just, you know, sit there and check our phones instead of interacting with each other, like face to face. I mean, what a great.
0: Think of Oh, Sorry. Yeah. No, just yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> things good and you know, I
1: mean just be where you are, you know?
0: Yeah, it's hard sometimes to stay present now with just the way that but you know, and I think when people look back though, some of the most fond memories, you know, are now and and, and back and you know, all the time are, are actually when you're you're there. You know what I mean? You get to enjoy something, whether it's at a barbecue or something like that, not just killing yourself on social media. So you grow up yeah. in DC. Uh what led you to Emory? Because that's an interesting choice for, for, for a school. I went to Wash U, and yeah. there always was kind of like this similar Emory-Wash U sort of like fake yes. nerdy rivalry type thing. So yeah. uh, what led you down to Emory?
1: Um, so I got to say, I mean, Emory was basically two reasons. One was that uh, when I started college in 1993, and I knew I was going to graduate in 97 if I did in four years, which I, you know, Hopefully yeah. <laughs> you'd be able to do that. Um, I knew that the Olympics would be there in nineteen ninety six. Oh and, interesting. You know, okay. And I moved to Australia and the Olympics were there in two thousand. So, you know, the theme here is that, you know, for me, being in a city that's preparing for something like the Olympics is an amazing time to be in a place.
0: Oh, it's so excitement.
1: There's a lot of momentum. You know, it's sort of like it's not just Atlanta's a great city or Sydney's a great city, it's it's a great time for that city. Uh-huh. And for me that was like a really big motivator so that was one thing the other thing was that um atlanta and emory just had a lot of really amazing looking women and you know 18 years old
0: yeah good good choice there's a lot of traffic and there's a lot of women down there so 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 you know pick your poison <laughs> that you know that that was uh that was a factor too so and what did yeah. you study there
1: uh so i did a double degree i did a degree in english literature um and sort of poetry weird um and i also did a marketing degree
0: all right cool and did you have like sort of at this point and I think that this is always an interesting case because I talk to people in college all the time and you know people some know they're like I'm gonna do this this and this and I'm gonna major in this and I'm gonna go do this and whatever did you have because you seem to be a guy that has a little bit of your planning hat on you know what I mean you're like Atlanta Olympics like most most 17 year olds at that time are not gonna be thinking like I'm gonna go to college where the Olympics is gonna be in, in you know yeah. different things like that What what, did you kind of have a vision for where you wanted to go after school, or what were what was sort of uh, uh, what you wanted to do afterwards? And then what did you actually do?
1: Well, I think a lot of people will uh, sympathize with this, particularly if they happen to be of Asian or South Asian descent, which is that you get a lot of pressure from your parents to go into a career such as you know being a doctor, medicine, yeah, yeah, medicine exactly. Um, And you know, I have a lot of friends who are doctors now, and some of them love it, and some of them just kind of ended up that way because that's where the family pushed them. Right. And so, you know, for me, Emory was also an easier choice because at that stage, I didn't know what I was going to study. And they have a great medical school also. So for my parents, it was, you know, like appease them a
0: little bit. Yeah. Just, in case. Was, right. but then,
1: you know, what I started to learn as I got there was that was not going to be my thing. I mean, I actually did an internship at an eye hospital or like mm-hmm. I watched eye surgeries and, and enucleations, which is like literally when they remove the whole eyeball out of somebody who's- it's a test. deceased. And like I mean, crazy stuff, right? Um, and I realized that, look, that's not my, my thing. And I think what I, what I learned from that was one of the most valuable things you can figure out when you're 18 or 19 or 25 or 30 is what you don't wanna do. Yep. Because now you don't waste your time. Right. And so for me to learn at 18 years old that being a doctor wasn't my thing, That was amazing.
0: That's a huge win. I mean, because a lot of people don't figure that stuff out. They're always focused on, yeah, being able to cross stuff off the list. I remember that when I was doing internships, like when I was uh, in college, I had so many random internships. I won't bore you with them now, but but I and you know each one, I would look at like the boss or I would look at the person, and I'd be like, do I want to be that guy or girl? Do you know what I mean? And often it was like, not really. And then, you know, cross it off and we just move on. And I, you know, I totally agree. And that's a great lesson for people that are taking away something from us here is that learning what not to do can be just as important as learning what to do, if not even more important.
1: Yeah, I think especially when you're younger because you do get a lot of – you get very influenced by what you see in the media, by what you know about like people in your family or your friend circle who are doing certain types of jobs and you you look at that and you're like, oh, that looks kind of cool. But then you get into it and you're like – I mean for example, I did an internship at the Cartoon Network when it first started up You know, Turner Broadcasting. It's in Atlanta. Right, right, right. Like the summer before the Olympics. And I was working in the PR team, and I was literally writing press releases for Bugs Bunny Marathons. That was, like, my job. That's awesome. Which was, yeah, it sounds awesome, and it sounds really cool. But what actually I learned from that was when you write a press release, the release part of that means that anybody can p- cut and paste what you write and claim that they wrote it. That's what release means. Oh,
0: interesting. Okay, okay. And yeah. Think-
1: so now you go and you look at those. You remember in the um, – they don't, I think, have this anymore, but in newspapers when you get the Sunday paper, you'd get that little magazine that says here's what's on TV this week, and you'd have like a little guy. Oh, yeah, 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 For sure. So like they'd have descriptions of shows, and they would lift what I wrote about the Bugs Bunny Marathon or about Cow and Chicken or about Johnny Bravo. And so I was published technically. But with no credit. I that they wrote it with no credit. I'm like this is the suckiest job ever. This is the suckiest job ever. There's no
0: credit. I worked so hard on getting the right words in there, and it's like you know, nobody get nobody knows that it's me. Yeah, you're like walking down the street. Like seriously, no, I wrote that. Yeah, I wrote that. Seriously, I wrote that, that, guys. (laughs) I know there's no credit, but seriously, I wrote that. (laughs) I know. And so, like, you know,
1: that was the first moment. I mean, as a writer, like, you know, you're not gonna make huge amounts of money, but at least like give me some credit for writing it.
0: You know? Right. No. That's awesome. So So, so you spent summers interning. You yeah. you graduate from Emory with a dual degree. Um, yep. and then you then you, you hightail it over to Australia. Um, and, and, and you do that for five years. And, and 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 again, tell us what kind of inspired that move before we get back here to the US. Well actually
1: there was a there was a lost year in between there. Oh, there's a lost <laughs> so, year. Yeah, so there's a year between graduating
0: and the moving. lost years. With the, the hit.
1: <laughs> And actually that was that was a good year too, because that was the year where I learned a lot about being an entrepreneur. Um, because I started working for my cousin's company. And actually, um, he, I sort of grew up with him as an older brother. And in the Hindi language, there's no word for cousin. Like, it's just brother.
0: Okay, got it. And oh, he was really like that.
1: Um, and the reason why I say that, I dedicated my new book, Lycanomics, to him because he passed away a couple years ago from cancer. Uh, he was young, yeah. a few sons and stuff. So, you know, it's, he's a really important guy for me. Right. And, um, you know, so basically from that experience, I came in and I was the only marketing person at a 12-person consulting company. Mm -hmm. So I did everything from designing brochures to teaching myself HTML to learn how to program a website to launching what I thought was the world's most amazing idea in 1997 for a business, which was to build websites for restaurants because restaurants didn't have websites. Right. So I created this whole thing called dcrestaurants.com. I got the domain name. I created a directory. And I went door to door to restaurants to convince them to let me build them a website for 500 bucks. Okay. Templates and everything built out. And I'm like, I'll build you a website, it'll be great. When people use this thing called the internet, they'll find your restaurant. And I failed miserably because I couldn't convince any restaurant that they needed a website.
0: Huh, what was, wh- why do you think that, like what was, what was your sort of takeaway from that, from that experience?
1: Well, I think it was, it was two things. One was that I was trying to convince them of a behavior that they didn't see happening in their customers. So I was trying to tell them, people are finding your restaurant based on the internet. And they didn't see that because nobody who walked into their restaurant said, oh, I found you online.
0: Or said, you know, why don't you have a website or something like that.
1: Yeah. So they were like, well, why do I need a website, right? The other thing was that um, this was sort of before the dominance of Google. And so there wasn't really that built-in way that I could say, oh, people are going to find you. Mm -hmm. So I tried to create a directory along with it. And I literally had this one moment when I went in and met with somebody at uh, AOL, I think it was. And I was wow. like, I've got this great idea. I'm going to do this DC restaurants thing. It's going to be a directory. You can tell all the small businesses that you work with that they can get a restaurant built from, uh, you know, with me. And we can drive traffic to it. And I remember this moment because I was sitting across from this guy at the desk, you know, being like, what, 22 years old and not having any business plan or anything. And I told him about what I thought was a great idea. And he said, okay, I understand what I can do for you. What can you do for me? Hmm. I literally had no answer to that. I just just sat there. Uh, And the biggest lesson I learned from that (laughs) meeting was never, ever walk into a meeting with someone without knowing what you can do for them. Because it's not about you. It's about them. And so at 22 years old, as an entrepreneur, to learn that and to learn that I didn't have a compelling thing to say, that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's such a valuable lesson early on. You know what I mean? And a lot of people, that's why I, I love talking to people like yourself about their foundation because you never know how people become, like studying successful people, do you know what I mean? And, and doing this, you never know. It's, it's, it's lessons like that with this random AOL dude who God knows what he's doing now, do you know what I mean? That can shape your entire future, little moments like that if you pay attention to them.
1: Yeah, and now you know I find myself, because now I teach and, and I'm working with students who have ideas and I work with entrepreneurs who've got you know, their, their startup ideas that sometimes that little moment of me being able to offer that kind of feedback for somebody can help them shape what they're working on, right. which I think is a really powerful effect of building an audience. It's not so much that I can go and reach however many people I reach through a blog post or through a book. It's the fact that I can have these interactions and really change how somebody's going to either succeed at what they're trying to do or not succeed.
0: Right, And that's really cool. Right. No, it really is. So I want to recap this real quick because I want to move on to next parts of the story here because there's so much we want to cover. I want to make sure we get, a, we get it all, we're going to jam it all in here today. Um, <laughs> uh, so number one, we, we kind of did chapter one, which was childhood and growing up in Washington, D.C. and then chapter two, yeah. you know, moving on, moving on to college. Um, Chapter three was kind of the lost year, if you will, there, where you, where you got your entrepreneurial feet wet and doing things like that. Then you go to Australia, and you mentioned, uh, tell us just briefly on this one, because I want to make sure we get back uh, into the U.S. and, and kind of continue. But uh, yeah. what, what, besides the Olympics, of course, what inspired the move to Australia? And also, uh, what, did your, uh, what did your parents have to say about you taking all that time over to Australia as well? I'm curious on that.
1: Well, um, on the parent thing that was uh, that was a little tough because I graduated and I was literally I had two different jobs after I moved on from my cousin's company. I had two different jobs that I was doing at the same time. one was coding in HTML uh, because I was making like you know thirty bucks an hour or whatever it was doing that, and the other was waiting tables at night mm-hmm. and I quit the coding because I was making more money waiting tables. Mm. And so, literally, I was saving money to move to Australia by waiting tables, and you know, so no parent is really going to be you know super charged up about that. Um, but then I got enough money, got my visa, and I moved. And essentially, I got my first opportunity only because I had a personal website.
0: Oh, int- meaning you had your own your own name website. My own You're name sorry. website, yeah, my yeah. own website, and so that
1: was my resume which was pretty uncommon in 1998 for somebody to say, you know, here's my resume and it's a website. Mm-hmm. So literally, my first job interview was for a three week HTML coding gig, and the guy had one question. He said, did you build this website and design it yourself? And I said, yes, because I did. And he said, okay, you're hired. And I got my job uh, for three weeks coding. Nice. Three week in that job, I realized the reason they needed to add a freelancer was because they had crap project management. So after one week, uh, I got hired to be a project manager on uh, a full-time role, and that was my first full-time job in Australia. And that was literally after like three weeks of living in a hostel, eating peanut butter sandwiches, and you know trying to get a job. Wow, um, that's that's so crazy. Weeks, got that job, and then you know that's how, what started my career in Australia.
0: And so, so your your career continues in Australia, and you were there for how long? Five years.
1: Yeah, five years. Okay, yeah. so
0: five years. What prompted the move back to the U.S.?
1: Uh, it was mostly personal stuff, I mean I was at Leo Burnett um, at the time, big advertising agency, leading a digital production team, uh, had probably what the, what's probably going to be the coolest title I'll ever have in my career which is executive producer. Oh I yeah, worked.
0: there you go, just like the screenwriter in, in you when yeah. you were little, there you go.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean we called ourselves that for the web, right? I mean we weren't project managers, that's like way too, you know, too simple. Um, but uh, you know, for me, it was just like I was twenty eight. I was ready to sort of settle down a little bit more and uh, wanted to be closer to family. I mean, Australia is like fourteen hours from anything, right? Literally, and uh, yeah, literally. Uh, and so that's that was a personal reason why I, I moved back.
0: And you moved back to DC. Yeah, I moved back to DC. And then, uh, and then when, and then how did you end up at Ogilvy? Uh,
1: so Ogilvy was an interesting thing because I moved back to DC and I was an ad guy. Mm-hmm. And, I knew that all the big ad agencies were in New York, and so literally I went through uh, the phone book or the phone book equivalent, saw found all the big agencies that were in D.C. I called up Ogilvy and I said, "Who leads your digital team?" And I found out the guy's name. It was John Bell, uh, who's still there. And um, then I looked on their website and I figured out that the syntax for Ogilvy email addresses is first name dot last name at
0: Ogilvy. There you go.
1: His email address is john.bell at Ogilvy, and I just randomly sent him an email. And I said, hey, I just moved here from Australia. Here's my background. I'd love to come in and just chat about if there's a job opening. And uh, probably three or four weeks later, I got called in. And then a couple weeks after that, I got a job based on you know just the background and not based on them actually having published something.
0: Oh, very so, interesting. You
1: know, what I figured out from that is like, a lot of times if you hit somebody at the right moment before they actually have to write the job uh, description – but they know they have a job, then you can sort it's of- good skip. timing. Yeah, you skip the queue. Yeah. And,
0: and what year was this when you got hired by them?
1: This was 2003.
0: All right, so 2003.
1: So, 2000, sorry, 2004.
0: When did, you, when did you, were you at this point also doing your blog, Influential Marketing, or when, when was that, uh, when did that come about? So
1: I got hired in January of 2004, and I started the blog in June of 2004. Okay. literally six months after I got hired I started the blog and John Bell and myself and a couple of other people started the digital influence team at Ogilvy which is currently the world's largest team of social media strategists
0: alright very cool so okay so now the big question and I think this is something that's on a lot of people's minds is is the book deal so how did you end up uh, you know personality not included is the first book and now we have like an which we're going to talk about in a bit Uh, but how did the idea for personality not included? How did you land a book deal? Tell tell us that story about how that stuff kind of went down.
1: Yeah, so the idea was was about um, me feeling like there was something bigger than just social media. All the way back in two thousand seven, I felt mm-hmm. like there was an idea bigger than social media, and and to me in two thousand seven, the idea that that I thought was bigger was the companies were becoming more human and they were showing their personality, and so I literally wrote a blog post about that that. I forgot about, actually, um, but I wrote it back in, I think, 2006 or 2007, and it was all about like why personality matters for companies. Sure. Now, fast forward to 2007, I go to South by Southwest, and um, I'm randomly meeting with people, and I get an email from this guy who says he's launching a book, and he wants to have breakfast to just talk about his book and if I have any ideas to help him market it. So I end up saying yes, and you know, as I often do, um, and uh, have breakfast with this guy. Talks about his book, uh, launches a couple months later. Turns out the guy is Tim Ferriss, and the book was Four Hour Workweek.
0: I've heard of those guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure, so, yeah, but, you but, probably interviewed I, him too, of course, right? Yes, Tim has <laughs> been on the show. Absolutely. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Uh,
1: yeah, so that turns into this mega thing, and you know, a couple months after that, uh, I was uh, emailing him, and I said, "Look, I have an idea for a book. I'm not really sure how to get started." And he said, "Well, let me introduce you to my agent." Ah. And so ah. that's how I got an introduction to the book agent.
0: Now, yeah. now quite question, yeah. I don't want to interrupt here, but I, I, I have to ask this question. How did Tim hunt you down to begin with? Um, because I, I remember talking to Tim about his story of the 4-Hour work week, and a big thing that he did was he built relationships with bloggers, right, in all kinds of different spaces. Yep. And, and you were blogging, of course, but how did, how did he even hunt you down uh, initially? Do you know?
1: Well, I think at that point, there were a lot fewer marketing bloggers. So ah. it probably was pretty simple. I mean, the, the ad age power list, the influential blogger list. I mean, I was, you know, there wasn't that much competition. So I was easily in the top 25 of pretty much every single one of them without really having to do that much because there weren't that many people doing it. So all he would have had to do was a quick Google search, and he probably would have pretty easily found that I was on the list and I was going to South by Southwest. So I imagine that's what he did. We never really, I never and really And that's asked. where you had,
0: bre- you had breakfast at South by Southwest? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, so okay. So then he introduces you to his agent. Yep. And where does it go from there?
1: So then um, you have to. Another lesson I figured out from this was um, if you want to work with the best people in any industry, it's not a matter of I have the money. Here you go. You got to sell yourself to them. Mm-hmm. And so, in order to get this agent to work with me, I had to sell him on the idea of the book and the fact that it would be a really successful thing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have taken me as a client. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't about the money. It was about the relationship. <clears throat> once I had that, and once I sold him on that, then it was a simple matter of we're working together. Whatever the deal is, he gets his cut of the deal. Right. So we're both incentivized to just get as big of an advance as possible. Um, and that's literally how we did it. So we sold personality not included based on a 10-page PowerPoint deck.
0: That's it. That's it. Um so, and you were able to sell it. Which publisher bought it?
1: Uh McGraw Hill.
0: McGraw Hill. Okay. Yep. And what was your experience then from there with the publisher? Was it was it a positive one? Like how, you know, tell tell us like sort of yep. what you any insights also from the first book? Cuz the first book is always a challenge for authors. You know, it's a you learn everything from the first book.
1: Yeah, you learn you learn everything. Um and uh and also, I mean, for me, um it was really important to – because I was a blogger, um, and I was used to writing in short form and quickly. And those skills were useful, but when it came to writing a book, the first thing I realized that I underappreciated was how little of my blog writing I could actually repurpose for the book. Ah. I thought I'd you know, maybe 20 30% of the book could just be from my blog. I'd just take it and massage it. Yeah, right,
0: right. Edit I, it. There I, you right, go. Head
1: start, right? That was my idea. Right. Didn't work out that way at all. I used one post from my blog, that was it, in the book. Uh, And it was literally one page out of 300. The rest was custom written and flowed exactly for the book. So that was the first thing I realized. Second thing I realized was that having a good editor makes a huge, huge difference. And I had a good editor at Mm McGraw-Hill. What a good editor will do is they'll tell you where you have gaps in your flow, your story flow. They'll help you figure out how to make things weave together. They'll figure out where the holes are in your arguments. They won't sit there and say change this word to that word. Right. I didn't need that. Uh, I mean some people might need that if writing's not their thing. Sure. I didn't didn't need that. I needed the kind of overall flow. The cohesiveness
0: of it, yeah. Yeah,
1: And The team that was there was was great at at helping with that. And so they actually really improved the quality of the book.
0: Oh, interesting. So the book comes out and that launched in 2008? 2008, yeah. 2008, uh, personally not included. you know, how did it do? What was your reaction? Like, like, how, how did that feel when it came out? Like, tell us, tell us about what, what, where it went from there.
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously holding a book in your hands, I mean, there's, there's no amazing, that's an amazing feeling. Um, and, uh, you know, so for, for me, uh, the other, the other thing that, that I sort of figured out from that was I under appreciated how important the week of launch was. So I didn't really line up a lot of stuff to happen that one week. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know what, it's fine, like I'll have a slow burn, it'll kind of keep picking up, I'll do more and more stuff, and it'll, you know, it'll sell decently well, like, you know, kind of ongoing. And that is sort of what happened, but because of not focusing on that short-term time frame, I never had that big spike of momentum, mm-hmm. didn't make any of the lists, like the Wall Street list or the New York Times list, um, and I just had kind of a, you know, a regular burn, and the book sold okay, and it had nine translations, which was amazing. Right. Um, but you know, it didn't have that big spike because right. I didn't, I never focused on that, and so that was a big lesson I learned that I am totally changing this time around.
0: Right. So let's talk about that. So now the new book's called Lycanomics. Before we even get into the book itself, the the strategy kind of that you just mentioned. Um, so now you know the book comes out twenty second here of May. That's really like you're like going for it. I actually saw a blog post where you said don't buy the book before then, right, or something like that. Yeah,
1: it was basically, it was a why I don't want you to buy Lycanomics, and this isn't a marketing trick. <laughs> and uh, literally what I was telling people is, look, the way that book sales are measured is with a, a tool called uh, Nielsen Bookscan. It's like Nielsen Ratings for TV, and they measure it on a weekly basis. So in order to have a chance of making the Wall Street Journal list, the New York Times list, the USA Today list, you need to load as many of your sales as you can into a single week time period. All right. So, because of that, um, you don't really want people spreading their purchasing out over three or four weeks. You want it to all happen during a specific time frame. The thing that you realize about the publishing industry is they give you a launch day. So, for four months, my launch day has been May 22nd, Uh listed on Amazon. The problem is the warehouse, you don't know when the warehouse ships the books. And Amazon starts delivering pre-orders as soon as they get the books. Yeah, that happened
0: to me when my book came out in 2010. It was early, like two weeks earlier, something ridiculous.
1: And mine came out almost four weeks early. Ah. So this is like crazy because now all your pre-orders hit in the wrong week. And everybody who pre-ordered the book, which is great because people want it right away and you want that. I mean, you want excitement and you want all of this stuff to happen. But if it doesn't all hit in the same week, then it's really tough as an author. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, to now try and roll everything up. So I literally had to put out this blog post. But I didn't have a choice because I had to put out the blog post and say, look, can you just wait um, and give people an excerpt which they can get online and, you know, a way of kind of seeing the book beforehand but rolling everything into that into that week a bit later. So it's one of the things that I think is fundamentally broken about the publishing industry is this whole kind of week-to-week short-term. I mean, it's the same thing that's broken in Wall Street and the you know financial right. industry right term results mentality but the problem is that everything is reported on that basis and so if you want to succeed in the book publishing game you gotta you gotta um, tailor to that
0: yeah and, and for you what's what's your reasoning for wanting to hit a list you know is, is it like kinda of is it a pride thing is it a business thing is it a this is really cool thing like like what what what's yeah. sorta of your reasons for for wanting to get on one of those major lists
1: yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I thought, about, I thought a lot about that and, like, how important is that really? I mean, if people get value from a book, changes somebody's business, you know, isn't that enough? Um, but one of the things that you see from those lists is that getting on a list like that creates momentum. Mm-hmm. Once you have momentum, the book gets in front of a lot more people than you would expect. And so for me, with a book like this that's very mainstream, it's all about why we make the decisions that we make, why we build relationships with people we like, you know, that's not necessarily just a marketing book. And it's not a social media book for sure. Mm-hmm. So with a book like that, I need to hit and reach a lot of people who probably never heard of me, um, who are not in the marketing field, who don't read blogs, um, you know, people who are just living their lives and doing what they do. And so to reach that kind of audience, you need that momentum because you've got to break out of the niche um, and you've got to reach more people.
0: Ah, very cool. So, you know, the book, I have it here on my uh, my iPad, on my pretty dodo case yes. uh, here on the iPad. And yeah, I love it that you immediately you're like, this is not a social media book about Facebook likes or something like that. Right. When it starts. But tell yes. us, um, because the book does come out today on May 22nd, or if you're watching this later on, of course, it's out. Uh, tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit about sort of the, the, the big concept in here and why people should check it out as well.
1: Yeah, so the big idea was actually literally, um, I thought back to the first moment when I started thinking about the idea of the book, and it was while I was in Australia. Mm -hmm. And we had this moment that I write about in the book, and it actually starts off the book, where uh, we were pitching for a piece of business, and we had the perfect idea, perfect team, perfect everything, walked into the pitch, had all the great responses that you want to have, left, a couple days later we got the call, and we lost, and Mm -hmm. we couldn't believe it. Mm And We had that sort of moment where it's like, would you have done anything differently than you did? And we wouldn't have. And it was about a year later that I met that client again, uh, just randomly at a conference. And I got a chance to ask her, I said, look, why didn't we win? And the moment that I had that conversation, what she told me really stuck with me. And it was this whole idea that it wasn't the quality of the ideas. It was the chemistry of the team. We just liked another team better and we chose them. And I thought about that over the last 10 years of not just pitching for business as an agency guy and a marketing consultant, but also in terms of like the people who I hired to redesign my closet at home, or the people that we choose to build relationships, or the emails that I get from people with resumes who want to work at Ogilvy and which ones I do more for because I choose to do more for. And it all comes down to how much I like the person. Mm-hmm. The people that I like, I do more for. I go out of my way to help them. I want to work with them. And so it started to land on this concept of, you know what, we've spent a lot of time focusing on trying to get somebody to believe something, but a lot of times belief doesn't convert into action. Right? I believe that cancer research, for example, is important, but do I go every day and make a donation to support cancer research? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. But if a friend or a family member is doing a cancer walk, and they approach me and say, hey, can you support me and can you support cancer research, then I do. Right, do because of the personal connection to the person I have and not because of my belief that that cause matters. Right, And so really that's what I wanted to write about, that this is what's driving our decisions but we don't focus on it enough. And if we did, we'd be a lot more successful as people with the relationships that we have but also in business with the clients that we get and the sales that we make.
0: All right, very cool. Yeah, and I've read it. It's a great book. Um, I got the uh, secret, special, like do not distribute, advanced, uh, yeah. Rohit copy that came to it that I have on the iPad. So uh, I cannot recommend it enough. Like out May twenty second. That's going to be linked up below in the show notes on the rise right of the top dot com. And uh, Rohit, this has been a blast, man. Thank you so much for sharing a lot of the story. Uh, I know that where it's just super interesting to hear from successful cool people like yourself where they came from and how they, how they got it going so I, I appreciate it and good luck with the book and I I hope it hits the list for you.
1: Thanks man I, it was, it's been a great interview and I think you know if I could leave the the folks here with a closing thought you know it's something that I shared in a presentation literally yesterday which is that um, you're a great example of this uh, I think I try and be a good example of this as well nobody's unreachable today and so if you need help from somebody, if you need inspiration from somebody, if there's somebody that you would love to reach for some reason, send them an email. You know, send them a Twitter DM. Try and get in touch with them because the personal relationships that you have, I mean, that's what determines whether you're successful or not. And now you can, you can reach almost anyone.
0: Boom. That's what it's all about. Rohit today on the rise to the top. I will see you next time. I'm David Simon Garland. And remember, if you want some fluff, you know what to do. Go pet a bunny. And one more quick reminder, if you want to create webinars with the greatest of ease, the best way is to definitely check out our good friends at GoToWebinar by our sponsor, Citrix Online. How about a 45-day, no-credit-card free trial? That's what you got to do. All you got to do is go to 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 GoToMeeting.com, GoToWebinar.com, click the Try It Free button, enter the promo code SPECIAL, and you are off to the races. And also, one final reminder, you can get on the VIP list to hear about everything first and all that kind of jazz. Join the Rise VIP list absolutely free at therisestuff.com slash VIP.